All right, those of you that are awake this morning, you're thinking, uh, Jeff, uh, Genesis 37 is not um, nothing, a nothing but Jesus text. Uh, I have two responses. The first is this. It actually is. The second is our winter preaching um, before the spring preaching that will start that Nothing But Jesus series is going to be on the life of Joseph. We're going to do the story of Joseph. Uh, why? Because we need a good story. Don't we? We need a good story to lose ourselves in. We need a good story so that we stop thinking about ourselves. We can forget ourselves for a couple of minutes. Do you notice when you read a good book and you, you watch a good movie and you get lost in the story, you don't think about yourself, you don't think about your concerns, and it is just a couple of moments of pure freedom and pure life. Peace. Stories have the power to do this. To lose yourself, to forget yourself, to feel something else besides yourself for a while. Something that's bigger, something that's brighter, something that's better. In other words, something, what stories have the power to do, they have the power to give you something original. And what I mean by that is, is that we're all experiencing creation right now, which is great. But we're all experiencing the corruption of creation, too, which we're fed up with, right? What you need to experience beyond creation and the corruption of creation is something original. The original, that's not creation and it's not the corruption of creation, has the power to reset you, reach you, give your life form and fill you. Good stories have that kind of power. So I want you to listen to this. The entire creation of the universe. The entire creation of the universe is covered in one chapter in Genesis. One chapter. The entire creation of the universe. Galaxies upon galaxies. Wonder. The story of Joseph covers 14 chapters in Genesis. The first 14 chapters of Genesis cover thousands upon thousands of years. you got the creation of the world, the first human beings, Adam and Eve, right? You have the invasion of the dark powers, the sin, the death, and the primal celestial intelligent evil. You have the first murder of a human being where a brother slays another brother, Cain and Abel. First 14 chapters, thousands upon thousands of years. You have Noah and the Great Flood. It's so fascinating about Noah and the Great Flood is that every ancient civilization documents in its earliest historical records written by human beings a Great Flood. Myth, come on. You have the Tower of Babel. You have in the first 14 chapters the first technological globalists. You have God reaching a messed up idolater named Abraham. What's happening with Abraham is that God invades the world with solid concrete grace. The first 14 chapters are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years that just blow by us. Snap. Puff. And then you get 14 chapters of Joseph 
that covers only 40 years. Why? Because Joseph is the point of Genesis. Joseph is what Genesis is building to. Joseph is the central idea of Genesis. Joseph is the big idea. Joseph is the point. Joseph is a great story. In 2008, Tim Keller wrote a New York Times bestseller called The Reason for God, Belief in the Age of Skepticism. In the introduction, he says, now that was 13 years ago, just to remember, all right? 13 years ago, remember we did that book, right? We did that book together. Uh, he says this 13 years ago in that book, we live in a divided culture. Ha! He continues, 13 years ago, the culture wars are taking a toll. Emotions and rhetoric are intense, even hysterical. Okay, so what are they now? There is a great gulf today between what is popularly known as liberalism and conservatism. Each side demands that you not only disagree with, but disdain the other as at best crazy or at worst evil. We don't reason with the other side today. We only denounce, end quote. And then he goes on to ask, but how do you reason with the other side when your fundamental understandings of reality conflict? In other words, how do we reason? How does, how does two differing ways of seeing the world reason together? They just see the world differently. How do you reason when you see the world differently? Keller went on to say there's a guy named Alistair McIntyre who wrote a book and the title of the book says everything about what's going on today. Here's the title. Who's justice? Which rationality? What do you do when everybody sees the world differently? Now, he does propose a way for conservatives and progressives to actually get along in the book. He says this. I'm just going to read a little bit because you're going to have to read the book because I'm not going to answer it fully. He says, we need to accept. He says, both conservatives and progressives need to accept something. Here's what they need to accept. He says that both exist and both are growing in numbers and on the rise. In other words, neither side is going away. So the question he was putting before it, everybody, in this book 13 years ago is, so what are you going to do? He says, we must figure out a different way other than dismissing each other and hope the other one goes away because they're not. So how do two people that see the world differently relate? The answer is, he says, is you got to stop dismissing each other. you got to start disagreeing with each other, and there's a difference. So practically, you have to read the book. I, I'm, that's great. This all interests me. I'm fine. And the culture stuff interests me. But I'm more interested in what goes on in the church. So now let's move from culture to church. What if the church becomes just as divided as the culture? What if the church, what if everyone in the church starts seeing the world differently? Which reality? Which rationality? Who's justice? Now what do we do when that happens? What do we do? How does the church get on the same page? How do we possess some scrap of unity in going forward with what's going on in the world today? How do we have something real to say 
in the midst of cultural chaos. How can the church get on the same page? The story of Joseph that we just looked at has two answers. The first one is this. When we, the church, are able to admit, you ready? I am the dreamer. Then we all get on the same page. I want you to look at verse 19. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. <laughs> Come now, let us throw him at let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Now, I want you to look at 19. You see the they there. Who's the they in verse 19? Well, the answer is the 12 sons of Jacob, right? Well, who are the 12 sons of Jacob? Well, the 12 sons of Jacob are the 12 sons of Israel. Jacob's name's changed to Israel. In other words, they become the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, this is the beginning of Israel. In other words, this is the first church. This is why this is the point, the emphasis, the highlight of Genesis. This is why it's 14 chapters, because Genesis is recording the first church. Now, here's the point. None of these 12 sons at the beginning of the story are portrayed as good people. None of these 12 sons are portrayed as righteous. None of them are portrayed as virtuous. None of them are portrayed as just. None of them are portrayed as you're on a good mission from God. They're all portrayed as arrogant you-know-whats. They're all portrayed as self-important. And you're asking, but what about Joseph, though? I mean, he's the hero of the story. He's pretty incredible we're going to read about. Okay, yeah, that, you might have a point. Will McDavid asks it this way, though. He says, who in the world talks like this? It's one thing to have a dream about everyone in your family bowing down to you, and quite another to tell everybody about it. Especially when, in an all-important birthright system in Joseph's time, you're at the bottom. He goes on to say, Joseph is clearly self-impressed and obnoxiously so. What traits does he have? to make his father favor him when he's clearly such an arrogant you-know-what, end quote. That's a great question. What traits does he have? The first church in the world was a bunch of arrogant you-know-whats. The first church in the world was a bunch of dreamers. So self-important. The church gets on the same page, just like this church would get on the same page, when everyone there admits, I am the dreamer. I am an arrogant you-know-what. Then, you know what happens? Then we all, the church, will experience some humility because it will no longer just be them who are the arrogant you-know-whats. It'll be all of us. We'll be able to say, you know what? We're all a bunch of dreamers. We're all a bunch of self-important, arrogant you-know-whats. Then we can disagree instead of dismissing each other, right? We can just disagree, because disagreement is good. And there needs to be disagreement. But there's no longer just dismissing the other, putting them either your view into saviorhood and salvation, and the other view either into hell and damnation, and the evil one. Now, I was told not to get specific, and I know my wife is saying, okay, Jeff, that's great. Stop right there. Don't go any further. And I'm like, yeah. And here's, I just need to say one thing. We need, 
We need to stop saying dismissing things like, this is where I probably shouldn't go forward, but I feel like I need to because people in the church are saying it. We need to stop saying dismissing things like silence is violence. In other words, if you don't see the world like I do, you're evil. And you better start seeing it like I do to become just. You know what? Silence in the Bible is virtuous. Silence in the Bible is humility. Luther says, you know what you do when you approach God? You shut up. You're silent. Silence in the Bible is respect. Silence in the Bible is justice. Silence in the Bible is mercy. Silence in the Bible is disagreeing and still being friends. And that's the way we're saying it here. In other words, we're saying, we're saying here that the way that we want to engage people and views and cultural ideas is that we want to be able, the gospel allows us to disagree and still be friends. Disagreement is good. Dismissing is not. You can't dismiss each other, but you can disagree. And you can debate. And you can reason together. And you can see truth rise. And you can see some of your views change and some of their views change. That's how civilized society works. So who's the dreamer? Who's the dreamer? I am the dreamer, the church should say. We are the dreamers. How does the church get on the same page? How do we possess some scrap of unity? How do we actually pull together something real that we can say to the culture? First, we admit, I am the dreamer. Second, the story of Joseph answers, when we, the church, feel deeply this, God loves me. God loves me. God loves me. Look at verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. Listen, even though Joseph has nothing to make his father love him, do you see this? There's nothing about Joseph that makes his father love him. He doesn't have one scrap of virtuous character in him at this point. He doesn't have one positive trait of performance and behavior at this point. He doesn't see the world rightly. He doesn't live in the world rightly at this point. There's nothing... Joseph has nothing, even though he has nothing to make his father love him, his father simply loves him. Will McDavid says it this way, Jacob's paternal preference for Joseph is arbitrary, gratuitous, foolish even. We could add other words. I want to add other things in there. Jacob's love for Joseph is certainly arbitrary, it's gratuitous, it's foolish. We could say it's illogical, it's weird, it's strange, it's extravagant, it's surprising, it's unperformed, it's unearned, it's in spite of, it's unjustified, it's unconditional. It's one way. One way. Not two ways. One way. In other words, God's love is independent of Joseph. God's love is the original. God's love comes on the scene first. 
God's love is first, second, third, fourth, fifth, endures forever. God's love is the invisible energy. It's the invisible actor driving this whole story. You almost miss it because we start focusing on other things, but we we miss it because it's right there at the beginning of the story before the story even unfolds. At the beginning of the story, in the beginning was God's love for you. In the beginning, God loved you. It's incredible because, listen, this means God's love is independent of you. It's independent of your struggles. It's independent of your sin. It's independent of your successes. It's independent of your failures. It's independent of your accomplishments. It's independent of your virtue. It's independent of any humility. Look, we know Joseph is going to gain some humility through suffering. He's going to gain some humility through his slavery and his imprisonment. His arrogant you-know-whatness is going to get shaved off a little bit. He's going to develop some virtue through suffering. But it's so important to see this. Even the brothers are going to change. But before any of that happens, before it all, and is the energy of, the, of it all, and the source of it all, is that God loves him. Before there's any virtue in him. God loves him before he becomes the savior of the world. Literally. God loves him before evil happens to him. God loves him while he's arrogant. God loves him in his meanness. God loves those brothers in their brutality. God loves them. God loves you in your meanness. God loves you in your arrogance. God loves you in your lustfulness. God's love is the original. It comes on the scene first. It's a great story. The church gets on the same page when we feel deeply as individuals and as a corporate body. God loves dreamers. God loves me. God loves you. You know, when that happens, we will experience now some love for others. It's just the way it works even our enemies. And we also experience what's called, when you're loved, do you feel good? Does love make you come alive? Does love bring like this craving for recognition, some form to your life, some fullness to your life? Of course it does. So imagine God's love bringing us finally concrete, solid recognition, affirmation, acceptability. He loves me. So you know what that does? That enables you and me to drop the dreamer in us. It changes us. We don't want to dismiss people anymore. We're going to disagree with them instead. And still try to be their friend, at least on our end. And then you pop them if they don't, sorry. God loves me, I can disagree and still be friends. All right, we're going to end this way. Look at verse 25. 
Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Have you ever, you know when you read the Bible sometimes, I don't know if that happens to you, it happens to me all the time. And I'll read something and I'll go, why are they telling me that? I mean, why is the author telling me that? Who cares what the camels are carrying? Do you ever read something like that? And you're just like, why? I mean... Do I really need to know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's names? Those are hard names. Do I really need to know this genealogy? Do I really need to know these particular laws in Leviticus? Do I really want to know what that means? You know, why is it here? Well, here, this is, this is what's important. Because gum, balm, and myrrh were materials in the ancient world to embalm the dead. I want you to think mummies, and I want you to think pyramids. Egypt was the land of the dead. Egypt was obsessed with death. Joseph is stripped of his clothes. Joseph suffers hatred and abuse at the hands of his brothers. Joseph is sold as a slave for pieces of silver by a brother named Judas or Judah, translated into Greek is Judas. Sound familiar? Jesus is sold as a slave to sin. Jesus is sold as a slave to death. So you wouldn't be. So dreamers wouldn't be. So I wouldn't be. God loves me, the dreamer. Now we can like learn to love others and disagree and still be friends.